I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Steve Haas, a partner at Hunt Andrews Perth in Richmond and co-head of the M&A group there. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Dave. I appreciate it. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, your background, how you came to M&A, the time you spent working at what was then Abrams and Laster in Wilmington with uh, Travis Laster, who, of course, is a judge on the Delaware Court of Chancery. Then several current issues in Delaware law, including cases involving officer liability, the recent decision in the AB Stable case and more generally litigation arising from COVID. And then finally, you're teaching M&A at the University of Richmond School of Law, and then your affinity for the drums, an instrument you have played for many years. So first of all, how did you come to to go to law school? How did you end up in M&A? Yeah, you know, my father was a physician, pediatrician, and for a while I thought that's what I wanted to do. But I realized getting a liberal arts degree in economics, you know, my mind was not geared towards science. And I actually took an economics of law class my senior year of college. And I think that's where it sort of clicked that I really like this idea of the intersection of business and law and constructing regulation around economic incentives. Loved it and decided I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. And I actually wrote my law school admissions essay on going in-house. And I suspect they've never seen such an essay. You know, everyone else is writing about saving the world or maybe going into litigation. And, you know, here they've got this nut job. He says he wants to work with businesses and help them, you know, sort of guide businesses to, to comply with the law while achieving their goals. Looking back on it, I think it was all pretty naive because, you know, I always tell this to people coming to our summer associate program. You really don't know what corporate lawyers do. And until you lived through it. You know, I'd sort of read up about it, but you, you really don't appreciate until you live through it. But I think I got lucky because it actually, it turned out once I started taking all these corporate law classes at the University of Virginia under a wonderful professor who I think you may have t- taken some classes. Yes, so indeed. Dooley, uh, the late Mike Dooley. I mean, he was just amazing. He was in private practice for a while and he still had that crusty feel to him as if he were a partner in a major New York firm, even though he'd gone into academia. I mean, just wonderfully salty business law professor. Took as many classes as I could with him. And it just sort of loved the idea. I loved corporate governance. I loved that it was gray and not black and white. You know, what is the right answer? And really started getting into the Delaware case law and was even fortunate enough to have Travis Laster before he went to the bench, he used to come down to the University of Virginia and teach a short class on takeover litigation and took that. And that's probably really what sealed the deal for me. And then you went to uh, what was then Hunt and Williams in Richmond as an associate, but you got a call quite early in your career from Travis asking if you could come up to Wilmington. That That's exactly right. So Travis had just worked with the Hunton team on a really famous takeover. It was Chesapeake versus Shorewood. So he was very close to the people that I was starting with as a first-year associate. And I'd just taken the class with him in, in my last semester at UVA. So I'd stayed in touch with him for that reason. He called me up probably towards the end of my first year um, as an associate. And, you know, every, I think every first year associate has the blues, right? You know, you've studied law for three years, you think you're going to do these great things, and you're doing due diligence, or you're doing document review. And 
Travis called up, said he was leaving Richard's Layton to form a new firm, made me an offer. I thought about it for a couple of days and said, why not? So I, I went and was one of the first associates there and had a tremendous experience working up there and specifically with him. And how did that shape how you approached the practice and how you think about corporate law? Yeah, that's a good question because they were primarily were and I think are a litigation boutique. And I wasn't interested in litigating. I I knew that and and they knew that. So I used to handle most of the transactional matters that went through the firm, advising boards, advising special committees. But I certainly had to do my fair share of litigation too. And and I think it's a really helpful skill. It, It helps you calibrate risk. Right. Because if you've been in the trenches in litigation, you see how making a decision, which may be perfectly justifiable at the time, is open to being second guessed when other things happen later down the road of that transaction. You know, and I wouldn't say making a decision to cut a corner, but you take a risk. And standing alone, that risk is very defensible, but you never know where a transaction is going to go. And then you, a few other things happen and suddenly you feel like you've got something with a bunch of hair on it when the plaintiff's bar comes in to challenge the transaction. So I really think that that helped. You see how emails and documents can be taken out of context, even though they're innocent, especially for public company M&A. You learn how important it is to create the objective record, You know the evidence. How are you going to prove that the directors are acting in good faith? Because you don't want to spend two and a half years showing the court what was in the director's head. You want to create actual you know, physical record of evidence. And, you know, and ultimately what I've thought, and I've had the benefit of working with some wonderful senior lawyers who mentored me. And one on the hunting side is Alan Goolsby, who's a very senior lawyer here. And he's just an incredibly wise lawyer. And I always thought that, you know, as a business lawyer, you really want to bring good judgment. And to me, you know, wisdom is knowledge plus judgment because you can know a lot of things and still not give great advice. So I sort of feel like that time in the litigation trenches really helped with that. And Abrams and Laster, now Abrams and Bayless, does both plaintiff side work and company side work, correct? Correct. And so how did working on deals for not necessarily shareholders, but plaintiffs challenging a transaction, uh, an action by a board? also change how you think about giving advice to boards. Yeah, I think if when you go on the offense, you know, you know what to look at and what kind of arguments to make. I mean, it certainly wasn't a traditional plaintiff shop and and the few plaintiff side representations we had were typically for large investment firms, the hedge funds who were willing to bring a suit because they had a case that they really believed in. But that's still that's still a perspective that many corporate lawyers don't get in their training as associates or when they're partners that those that group of clients tends to go to different law firms. Yeah. And, you know, I would say it brings about a different passion. If you're going on the offense in a case you really believe in, I I think there's just something that, uh, you know, there's more emotion in it than defending a case that you really believe in. I don't know why that's so, but, you know, there's something about going on the offensive, you know, trying to vindicate your client's rights. Did you ever consider going down that path in your career? Obviously, you came back to hunting after a couple of years at Abrams and Laster. Yeah, not at all. And I mean, so maybe in another life, I should have been an appellate lawyer. I really couldn't stand the uh, the document review, uh, the discovery side of litigation. 
standing up in court never really appealed to me, taking depositions. But what I loved was the brief writing part and, and the case law. But I think what I discovered about myself is, is I much more enjoy negotiating contracts and giving advice to companies and their directors and officers rather than the other 95% of the work of a litigator. And e- even though you returned to Hunt, you actually helped recruit Tom Bayless to your old firm in Wilmington. And he's, he's obviously now a, a name partner with Kevin Abrams. Yeah, I mean, Tom's a, a tremendous lawyer. Uh, we, we send work to Tom. The Tom and I were both in law school together. He had gone to Skadden in Wilmington. He was a year ahead of me in law school, but we knew each other. And he's actually from Richmond. So I had reached out to Tom once Travis uh, had contacted me, and I, I still don't remember exactly how it played out. But I think by the time I'd moved up to Wilmington, Tom was already on board and working hard with uh, Kevin and Travis. So, so turning to Delaware law, let's talk first about recent cases involving officer liability. Yeah. So. I think it's a really interesting time in Delaware, you know, and I'm a self-professed corporate law nerd, so I'll try not to get too far in the weeds, although I think you are too, David. You know, that there is, we had the Corwin case many years ago that essentially said that if a fully informed shareholders approve a transaction, it's incredibly difficult, essentially impossible for plaintiffs to continue their prosecution of that case. And there was a lot of outcry. Has the pendulum swung too far? That's what we kept hearing. But there's been a, a recent string of cases upholding claims about against officers. And I think that's concerning. It used to be pretty rare. And for the non-lawyers listening, officers don't have the same level of protection as directors. Directors can't be held liable for breaching their duty of care. It's a policy that we don't second guess an unreasonable decision. Officers don't have that protection under the theory that this is their day job and and they should be using a reasonable level of care. But you've got the same risk of being second guessed in that situation. And so it used to be pretty rare that you'd see cases brought against officers. Uh, There was one and I actually started trying to sound the alarm bell. It's called Chen versus Howard Anderson. I think it was a 2014 case where the court dismissed directors, but said the CEO slash director was acting with his officer hat on. But again, you know, it didn't seem to be a trend, but I can count at least six cases in the past 13 months now where cases were upheld, uh, claims were upheld against officers. Most of those involved, you know, I think what you, you would probably characterize as concerning allegations about insider misconduct, but still not all of them. And, and a lot of the concern that I have is cases where you're talking about a disclosure violation. You know, if we're talking about upholding claims against officer misconduct because they were steering a transaction to their preferred bidder, you know, I think that makes sense. But if if we're going to be in a, a world where we say that any disclosure violation must have been, had to have been a breach of the duty of care by someone, then I think that's pretty concerning for officers. At the end of the day, are the Delaware courts really going to go after well-intentioned officers who just sort of got it wrong in the disclosure? Hopefully not. I think there's also a bit of a barrier that the Delaware courts have typically admonished plaintiffs to bring claims for a disclosure claim prior to the shareholder vote, where it's really easy to remedy by ordering that supplemental disclosure. But still, it's a bit of an open issue, and and it's a little troubling. On the, the disclosure claims against officers, 
how egregious does the disclosure violation have to be for a chancellor to find, even on a motion to dismiss, that the officer conceivably could have violated her duty of care? Legally, of course, you know, the, the standard is that you have to provide all material information and you can't omit any material facts. So that's the standard. In terms of the human element of judging and whether they're going to go after officers, I mean, again, I think if you look at these six cases, most of them involved, you know, what what you would characterize as concerning allegations. And one example is Morrison v. Barry, which was the fresh market case. There, uh, the founder slash insider essentially teamed up with a private equity firm. A lot of those facts were undisclosed. And the court I think inferred that the general counsel probably knew a fair amount about what was going on, which may not be true, and that the failure to disclose a lot of the background about what that founder was doing was a disclosure violation and therefore upheld claims against the general counsel. So there you've got claims where not necessarily the general counsel was engaged in misconduct, but there's still something going on, right, that's troubling to the court. On the other hand, if you look at, I think it was the Baker Hughes case, you know, the primary allegations were simply that there were recent financial statements, some unaudited financial statements that were current that weren't disclosed. And the court upheld claims, I, I recall, against the CEO, but not against the CFO. And it was really just based on the pleading because you got to think, well, I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but you got to think other executives were equally involved in preparing the SEC filings, right? So with regard to that Morrison v. Barry and and kind of that first category of cases, Delaware courts have always been concerned about conflicted behavior on the part of officers and controlling shareholders or shareholders with large stakes. So, So how does this strain of cases differ from that historic concern? Yeah, and I don't know if it is yet. Uh, maybe it's more of just my concern that we're going down a potential road where any disclosure violation is is going to potentially expose as an officer to liability. Because I think you're right. We've always, you know, going back to the 80s, if not before, there, there's case law about officers engaging in misconduct. And I've always used the term, um, you know, this borrowing from a ruling that Travis Laster had, I think it was a Zenith, Rearticulate his concerns as skimming and steering, you know, and that skimming is diverting merger consideration to the management team, and steering is pushing the transaction to their preferred bidder. And and I when when I use that terminology, I think it tends to resonate with business people. Like, okay, we get it. You know, look, if that kind of behavior is going on, it, it's inappropriate, and you would expect the courts to step in. I think, you know, again, my concern is more doctrinal that if. You have very smart lawyers uh, coming in to challenge transactions. Um, sometimes they get into the weeds of the disclosure. And if you've got a court say, you know, that should have been disclosed, even if it didn't relate to sort of any, any misconduct, you know, just something about uh, the investment banker's financial analysis. Does that mean that an officer who signed off on that proxy has breached their fiduciary duty? I hope that's not where we're going to. I think there's safeguards on it. But, you know, again, you've got six cases in 13 months upholding claims against officers. I think that's new and something everyone should pay attention to. My last thought on this, is this a consequence of Corwin and all these other cases that were very have become very protective of boards? I, I don't know if it is or not, you know, but I always thought with Corwin that there was a safety valve, and this isn't a legal term, but it's, a, it's the smell test. 
right? That I always felt that Delaware courts, if they saw allegations that troubled them, they would find a way around courtroom. And they have. <laughs> and they have. Turning to the uh, busted deal litigation arising from the COVID pandemic, I, I guess the one written decision from Delaware we have there is AB Stable, which in, involves a case where Mirai, a South Korean insurer, had agreed to buy 15 luxury hotels in the U.S. from Digia, a Chinese insurer. There were issues with title to the hotels, Mirai, claimed that it had the right to walk from the deal under the contract. Litigation ensued. Vice Chancellor Laster found that, in fact, Mirai did have that right and issued a 243-page opinion, but much of which was devoted to the recondite issue of the a title on the hotels, but nonetheless, he discussed at length the Delaware law on MAEs and at lesser length, the Delaware law on ordinary course covenants. What did you take from that decision? Yeah, you know, I actually think the ordinary course covenant issue, which popped up in AB Stable, but in several of the COVID cases, is the most significant MAE issue to come out of COVID. Because a lot of the issues that deal lawyers have been wrestling with are very COVID specific and they're going to continue until the pandemic is over. But it's, you know, it's allocating the risk of the pandemic and making sure that the seller has sufficient flexibility to do what it needs to do. And, and I think deal lawyers have their grasp around that. I think AB Stable pointed out there's a larger problem with some of these MA contracts. It's been around and we just didn't know it and is going to continue beyond the pandemic. And the question here is, with an ordinary course covenant, does that allow the seller to deviate to respond to external factors, to deviate from the ordinary course? And the court said, no, it could not, at least the way it was drafted. You know, It was an unqualified obligation that said, you shall operate in the ordinary course consistent with past practice. We also saw similar allegations made in the Victoria's Secret litigation. And I think the deal community in both cases was a, a little surprised in one sense that a lot of the actions that the sellers were taking in many of these cases, they're the kind of things the buyer probably would want you to do if the buyer had to close, right? They were value-preserving actions. So what I think AB Stable has revealed is a large disconnect between material adverse effect clauses and the allocation of risk in the MAE versus this covenant. And so is is there a tension between those two pieces of the merger agreement that will always exist? Or are there ways to reduce that tension in how the ordinary course covenant is drafted and the specifications around that covenant, which are often appended to the, to the merger agreement, but not technically written into it? Yeah, no, I think there are. And, you know, to, to sort of emphasize what I think deal lawyers see as the disconnect is you spend all this time negotiating the definition of a material adverse effect. And we know that's incredibly seller friendly. And in many cases, it would specifically exclude the impact of a pandemic, right? So the buyer is assuming that yet now the buyer can get out of the deal because of the seller's handling of the pandemic. And, and that's a disconnect. 
without getting too far into the drafting weeds, I think what you're going to see is more of these covenants qualify by reasonable best efforts, which, you know, look, I think it's sort of a fair result in many ways. I don't know if all buyers are going to agree to that. But here's my view on this. And I think the Delaware courts sort of got it wrong. I respect why they ruled the way they did. And this came up in the Cooper Tire case as well. And ultimately, it's probably on the lawyers to draft better. But my sense, and I've talked to a lot of other M&A lawyers about this, is that there was something implicit about an obligation to operate in the ordinary course that was within the party's control. It's a covenant, right? You're not repping that the company has been, at the end of the day, operating the ordinary course without some appropriate level of materiality. But it's on the drafters if, if you didn't have it sort of appropriately qualified. But there's a Canadian case, and you wrote about this, the best piece I've seen on it. I think it was Fairstone versus Duo Bank, where the court wrestled with the same issue. And I think, I'm not going to say they got it right versus Delaware getting it wrong, but I think it was closer to what M&A lawyers have thought. And the court there essentially said that ordinary course is best interpreted by analyzing what the business had done in similar circumstances, or if there weren't similar circumstances, comparing it to what other similar businesses were doing. So, you know, I, I think there's something implicit about being within the party's control, because after it all, it is a covenant. To, to what extent can buyers address this issue by negotiating more robust either notice or consent rights, requiring a seller to inform the buyer if the seller is going to deviate significantly from how the seller has been running the business in, say, the last year or two years, and perhaps even in extreme deviations, giving the buyer the right to consent to those changes? Well, uh, first of all, as I think you know, public company M&A is just extremely seller-friendly. And we're already seeing, at least at the bid draft stage, some pretty, what I would say are unreasonable, if not obnoxious proposals from sellers, where they're now trying to import MAE exclusions into the ordinary course. So, you know, we shall operate in the ordinary course, but taking into account and changes in law, changes in the economy. And, you know, and I think that is ridiculous. It's interesting you bring up the consent right, because most of these contracts, most of these covenants already have a provision, you know, except that the seller shall or shall not do something without the buyer's consent, not to be unreasonably withheld. And in a lot of these cases, the sellers didn't seek consent. And I don't know why. And I think that's it's an interesting question for the M&A litigators in future deals is, do you start documenting your request? And are you now litigating over whether the consent was unreasonably withheld? Or do you just do it and take the position you were permitted to? And I don't think there's an obvious answer where you can say, well, you should always do it this way. It's going to depend on the situation. But I, you know, you'd think in a pandemic, there certainly would be a pretty good argument if their value preserving actions that, you know, a buyer is unreasonably withholding its consent. And, and then uh, finally on this issue, how does the mere fact of the pandemic and the extraordinary measures many businesses have taken in response to it change how an ordinary course covenant may be interpreted in five or 10 years when a judge can look back and say, well, the Target and similar businesses did this in 2020 and 2021. So you buyer had to know that that was a 
at least a possibility when you signed this agreement. Yeah, so we now have precedent for the great flu of 2030, right? <laughs> Where people are going to look back. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. It's it's an interesting question. And, you know, again, I don't want to get too far in the weeds, but I think AB Stable is now also making lawyers realize even using the phrase consistent with past practice may add something. It does add something to the obligation to operate in the ordinary course. You know, on a clear day where there's no crisis going on. I'm not sure that language means much. So, you know, if you didn't have that and all of a sudden your targets are to closing stores, I think a court necessarily is going to say, well, they've done that before. But the, the court may be stable attached to that language that you, it was consistent with past practice that you weren't going to look to peer companies. So, you know, I, I think to your point, if you were looking back a couple of years from now as to what someone did, that, that language may actually be pretty important. And you also teach an M&A course at the University of Richmond. Why do you enjoy that? What do you get out of that as a practitioner? Yes, you know, I started doing as an associate. I think I've been teaching for seven or eight years off and on. I I briefly thought about teaching law going into that. And that that was actually why I first started teaching because, you know, despite the research side, I wanted to make sure I would enjoy classroom instruction too. And it's just one of those things you progress in your career and never did it. But I really like being part of an academic environment. There's something about the buzz of being in a university or graduate school setting. It's fun. There's a lot of energy. And I think it's good for practitioners. And this should be obvious. But to teach something, you really have to understand it. And it makes you re-examine things that we do in our practice day in and day out, where maybe you don't think about the reasons why. So you know, I think it forces you to re-examine what you're doing and really make sure you get it. And, you know, it's also, I think it's good to reread all these seminal cases, you know, each year, you know, going back and reading Revlon and then going through the facts, you know, Mills is a wonderful case that people seem to forget about. So I think it's great. And then there's also the academic literature, you know, the first class of my semester, I always go through Henry Mann's market for corporate control. I don't know how many M&A practitioners are brushing up on Mann each year, right? Which academics who are working today do you enjoy reading? Do you, I mean, do you do you follow the academic literature or you follow it more at a distance and you'll read, you know, maybe one article every couple of months? No, there's some, I mean, look, so Steve Bainbridge immediately comes to mind, a University of Virginia law grad and actually study under Mike Dooley, who we talked about earlier. Steve Bainbridge is wonderful, but there's a lot of other great professors out there. Hillary Sale, who I think now is at Georgetown. Charlie Corsmeau at Case Western, wonderfully nice and funny guy, has done some great work. I think Minor Myers, I may have the name wrong on appraisal. Steve Davidoff, you know, I, I got to know Steve when he was writing as the deal professor at the New York Times, and Steve's done some great work. And I thought, especially in his early days, that his analysis was resonating more with practitioners because he'd been in private practice for I think more than eight years. I mean, yes. he, he'd had a good run compared to a lot of academics who, you know, two or three years at, you know, at a New York firm. Like, come on, you know, we all know what you were doing the two or three years, right? Paying off debt. <laughs> <laughs> Paying off debt and looking and doing due diligence. <laughs> and then finally, tell us a little bit about playing the drums, how you got started, how you're still involved. <laughs> yeah, so shifting gears here. I have played drums in sixth grade. My father is 
probably played about 15 or so instruments. I'm everything from the trumpet to the bagpipes. So, you know, so it, there's a lot of music in my house. They probably regretted that I picked the drums and they still like to tell me that we had to move to a larger house in eighth grade because of that. But have played ever since, played in a band in college. It was a ska band that recorded an album, which very few people listen to. And, you know, here I am, I'm practicing law because of that. Played in a law school band, um, which was a lot of fun and, and still play. I don't play in a band at the moment, before the pandemic, I still took lessons. I call them advanced lessons. I don't know if my instructor would agree. <laughs> he probably wouldn't. Uh, but weekly lessons, two drum sets at the house. And we actually have a partner band at Hutton. It's, it's amazing when you get at a law firm of this size that there's pockets of really amazing talent outside the law. So we get together once every two years and play at our annual partners meeting. Uh, it's probably pretty gratuitous. I don't know <laughs> if the crowd really loves it or not, but we certainly have a great time doing it. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus. <laughs>